Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Our next guest says, absolutely not, and she is making some noise. Meet Katrina Stroll. She is a Navy veteran, an aviation structural mechanic, no less, who has literally turned her life around. She is now a certified career coach and the host of Absolutely Not a podcast that is dedicated to creating a healthy workplace. She's here to tell her story and her truth, including her own struggle with mental health. Welcome, Katrina. So nice to have you. It's super nice to be here. I'm excited to dive into, well, basically me. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So tell us the theme that is most consistent throughout your life. If you had to pick a theme, what would be the one that's most consistent throughout your life? Um, I think the theme of my life would definitely be, and I, I absolutely hate this word, but it would be resiliency. It would be my ability to say, oh no, I don't want this shit and I need to go somewhere to find better. I understand that completely. I know resiliency is a tough word these days, right? Particularly in the global majority. We're realizing that resilience means that you can keep beating us up and we're going to bounce back. We're trying to get rid of that word and come up with something else. But, you know, the context with which you're using it, I completely understand it. You have bounced back. Mm -hmm. I just don't want people to think they can continue to knock you around. Mm. Um, And that's what I'm trying to get to is so that through my own work, that's what I'm trying to get to the message of we refuse to be abused any longer. Yeah, that's great. Totally agree. So you describe yourself as Black, Samoan, and queer. Can you talk a bit about that intersectionality and what it means for you to carry those names, really, identities? Um, What it means for me to carry those identities, it means that I have lived experiences through each of those lenses. It means that when I have conversations about one of those identities, it's going to come with experiences through the other lenses of those identities. And I think when people from those communities that are only looking for one side of the coin, they're not going to get that. And sometimes it confuses people because they're not understanding, well, you're Black, shouldn't you think this? Well, you're queer, shouldn't you think this? Well, you served in the military, shouldn't you think this? And I need people to understand that with that intersectionality, my opinions and ideals come a rainbow effect, if you will. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking what resonates with me and, you know, I definitely have my own intersectionality. So I understand parts of myself that meet with the other and the integration of, of all of my parts. And so I understand what you mean when you say one informs the other, so to speak. You can't separate them, isolate them, or compartmentalize them. That's not the healthy approach. On one hand, I get that completely. On the other hand, I absolutely lead with my Blackness because that is what is most affected by living in a white supremacist society. And you can guess, you know, I say this all the time, you can guess I'm gay, you can guess I'm queer, you can guess I'm a lesbian and a big old butch, but you are going to respond to my Blackness. And so that's the one I feel takes the lead and the others are informed by that. Does that make sense to you? 
It does. And that happens to me all the time. My black skin doesn't go away. My black features don't go away. So even if people assume, oh, mixed, I've heard that a lot. Mm -hmm. They immediately see the blackness in me and walk accordingly or speak to me accordingly because of what they see. So yeah, I understand completely. Absolutely. And so when you use queer, when you identify as queer, what does it mean to you? I ask everyone who, who identifies as queer because I have heard so many different ways in which it's uh, it's explained. So I'd love to hear yours. Mm -hmm. So I am a baby queer, which means I don't have a large understanding of the history that comes behind that word or the community that's in place. But for me, I'll accept the term that I'm using for myself. It just means that I'm able to do whatever I want to do with my own sexuality. It gives me the spectrum I need to feel free, my own sexuality and identity. And I love that word for me because yeah. that's what I need for me. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. So you have shared that you live with PTSD, MDD, and alcoholism, major depressive disorders, MDD, and alcoholism. Did you receive these diagnoses while you were in the military or afterwards? I received them while I was in the military and was medically retired because of these diagnoses. Okay, okay. Has that impacted your uh, what you received from the military? Have they been supportive and responsive to that? Could you yeah. rephrase the question? Absolutely. I'm just wondering if they had your back. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Oh, my goodness. Which is a, a very big question. But I will say that I was not supported after I received my diagnoses. That's that's what I wanted to know. And that's what I thought. And I'm so sorry for that. And I appreciate your service so much. No, oh, thanks. Um, so you left the military, you decided to venture into coaching. What was the catalyst for going in that direction specifically? So while I was in the military, I served as an aviation structural mechanic and I was forced to become a career counselor. So I was both fixing jets and, ass and assisting people in their career development. I fell madly in love with it. I fell madly in love with it and did not understand why the military wouldn't let me stop turning wrenches and sit at a desk and help people move forward in their careers. Yeah. Throughout the transition out of the military, people told me to move into HR and I kind of left coaching alone and career development alone because a lot of small companies don't have a career development specialist position. So right. I said, OK, I'll go fall under the umbrella of HR throughout my time in corporate America and in all of the positions I was a part of. I was abused, harassed, and a whole bunch of stuff, which made me leave those positions and start my own business. I now focus on career development through my own lenses and psychological safety consulting and services through my own business to ensure that that type of behavior does not continue in any environment people want to be in. So that's what you mean by psychological safety. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, that makes sense in the workplace. Sure. And so... You know, in your LinkedIn bio, you said, I decided to take my own life after internalizing the behavior of a toxic workplace. Can you say more about that, please? Mm, okay, you guys ready? Yeah. We're ready. ready? Absolutely. Okay. And we got so, you. We're right here, we're right here with we, you. We do. 
So in 2018, I decided to take my own life multiple times after being harassed, manipulated, gaslit, and abused by a toxic work environment. They continued to make me feel like I wasn't worthy of the amount of money they were giving me. I wasn't earning my paycheck was their exact words. And I internalized that messaging to make me think that, oh, wow, I'm not a good employee. I'm probably not a good person. I probably shouldn't be on this planet anymore. I don't want anyone to ever get to that point. And so I focus on psychological safety in the workplace and enable people to really take a step back and know that what they're saying to people can be internalized and cause, can cause harm. Absolutely. I once had a, um, yeah, I'm going to put him on blast. So what he did say it. So I was uh, the executive director of a teen center in Greenwich, Connecticut. And one of the lead, what do you call it? Like uh, financiers said to me one time when I let too many brown and black children in there on a particular night that, you know, I give my money to the boys and girls club. Uh, so that community can go over there. This community is really, this has been created for our community. And when I opposed that, he said, well, how are you going to do better than this, really? Because at the time, I didn't have my undergraduate degree. I had the professional experience, but I didn't have the, the credentials. I think it was the next year I quit. <laughs> and it's been, you know, onward and upward since then in terms of my own trajectory. But that is a form of abuse. And people need to understand that that is unacceptable. No one should tell you you can't do any better. So that resonates with me completely. It's a horrible position to be in. Mm -hmm. I feel and, you. and I think when I was in that space, I didn't have the vocabulary I needed to name that harm. I didn't know what it was. I knew I felt this tug on my heart. And I was like, what the fuck was that? Like, I don't understand why y'all are treating me like that. But because they had the tactics in place to manipulate and gaslight me, I didn't know how to combat it. I didn't know how to name the harm that was being placed upon me. And so just like you, I stayed there for as long as I could. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you add to it, you know, the racial component uh, being a part of the global majority, it is so oppressive, which is why they're doing all this research on why brown and black people don't want to go back to the workplace after the pandemic, just to re-engage in behavior that has continued to marginalize us for a paycheck that's not really what we're worth. And then, you know, you're hearing the cry throughout society and there's jobs and nobody wants them. Well, why would you want to go back to being abused? That's, that's the thing that America doesn't understand, right? We're not making this shit up. It's real. <laughs> you have disclosed the levels of abuse you have experienced throughout your life. That realization seemed to be very validating for you. Can you talk about why that was so validating? Like I said before, the ability to name it for what it is. Because before, there are a lot of people around who don't have the right vocabulary. There are a lot of people who are a part of the system. There are a lot of people who are in the organization you're a part of who don't see what you see. But as someone who, at the time, I was really in tune with myself and really knew that, wow, this is not the type of behavior I want to get used to and or be a part of. Being able to really put a name to that harm was validating because it told me at the time and even now, now I have to tell myself on a daily basis, it was never me. It was never, ever me. Whatever they had going on, whatever that organization is running on, whatever Kool-Aid they may have drank and everybody around them drank, I have never, ever sipped the Kool-Aid and I will never, ever sip the Kool-Aid. So that's why it's so validating. Yeah, you know, 
you bring to mind uh, something else, which is, you know how we code switch when we get in the environment because we have to, we have no choice, right? For those who don't know what code switching means, it's used uh, largely in the uh, brown and black communities for how we have to change who we are to function in a mainstream white environment and be less true to ourselves in, to, in terms of trying to assimilate rather than integrate in a way that's much more emotionally healthy for us. It brings to mind people who are over assimilated. They've kind of gone over the code switching line, brown and black people who've gone over the line and they become a part of the problem because they're got accustomed to the salary, the position, their trajectory. And so they become afraid to speak up when they see unjust because they feel threatened by the possibility of you unveiling something that they've already accepted. And so that's a higher level of right internalization that becomes destructive to the community and more importantly destructive to that person mm -hmm. and i think that's just it's horrible because i don't think they even realize the damage they're causing to themselves mm -hmm. let alone to the greater community you know you lose something when you give up some of yourself that's mm -hmm. the way it is go ahead Suze. i was just gonna say listening to both of you talk about this i spent my career before i became a therapist in a very white world. And I'm just thinking about the importance now of what I know and how important being able to name it, having education and mental health is so important that has, and the world that was so invisible to me then, that I was just so complicit in it, living in it, not being aware of the experience of black and brown people of color and the LGBTQ community in my experience, and I'm just thinking about how profound that is, knowing what I know now and well, wanting to go back. Yeah, yeah, and do a, do a do-over. You know, I had an experience today, speaking of that, you know, I, I, I feel so compelled to talk about the I don't know, right? The idea that the white dominant culture gets to walk around and say, I didn't know. And at least you have the decency to say, I wish I could go back. But most people live on that, I don't know. You know, today I was in Big Lots getting a gift bag and I watched this thing unfold and it was in real time and it was so painful. So real quick story, there's a line, there's no directions, you know, Big Lots of free for all, right? And so there's a line and, and there's it's not clear where you're supposed to be. So I almost jumped the line, but then I looked over and I said, oh, is that the line? Yeah, okay, get in the line. So then this white woman comes along and she proceeds to go right in the front. And so this black gentleman says, you know, the line is over here skip to the end where now i'm up front and another black woman is up front she takes over the directions and has the nerve to say to this young woman who is actually in front of me that you cut the line you should go to the back and my head almost exploded Do you know what i'm saying yes. like she didn't even know about the line now she took over the line now she's the boss of the line and she says to this young woman you you know the line is back there i jumped in so quick she could barely get her last word out i said she was in front of me and i just turned around because i knew if i did anything else i would become the perpetrator right. when she was actually the perpetrator and her fragility set in and she said um oh thank you as opposed to being humbly apologetic so it's like that i don't know is so pervasive in protecting the white spaces and the white bodies and i'm i'm just so completely over it i just want everybody to start talking to each other and calling that shit out like why was i the one that had to call that out everybody else saw it happen too and so I appreciate what you're doing. And I want the Susie's of the world to go back and say to all the people that you knew, cut that shit out. It's not okay. We're sick of what it. The fuck? What the fuck, right? Absolutely not. That's what I want. Absolutely right? not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting me share that, that story in your, your space, Trina, but I just thought it was relevant.
Very relevant. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. So personal boundaries seems to be the primary focus for you in and out of the work environment. How did this come to fruition? It, you really, you really wrapped yourself around the word boundaries and you use it frequently. And I, of course, I mean, anybody who's a therapist is a boundary whore, excuse that connection. I'm not sure if that's appropriate <laughs> or not, but I thought it was loosely, you know, affiliated. So yeah, so like we're obsessed with it. We, we will do anything to talk about boundaries. So I'm just wondering as a career coach and sort of a person who's gone through the mental health struggle, obviously you've learned, you've learned about boundaries and how important they are, but you've really made it a part of your mission. Can you talk about that? The reason I use boundaries so much in my work is because it's a simple concept that's also so complex. Once you get into boundaries, you then have to make sure that you are self-aware of your own behaviors. You then have to be aware of other people's behaviors around you. You then have to be aware of so on and so forth, your mental health and the boundaries that you're setting in place and the relationships that you're a part of. So it seems very simple, but as soon as we start peeling it back, people are like, oh shit, I have to make so many changes in order to set boundaries anywhere and create healthy relationships. So I think that's what I love so much about it is it seems simple, but you got to do the work. Yeah. And, and it also is universal. You know, Susie, you and I talk about boundaries all the time and how important it is. Right. And you've, you've learned boundaries in your own personal struggle, your journey you've talked about. I on the show. know what a boundary was. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of therapists don't learn what boundaries are until they fall over the edge mm -hmm. and realize that, wow, me not knowing boundaries can inflict an infringement on the emotion of emotions of people that I'm trying to serve. Because I do think therapists come from an honest, sincere place in becoming therapists. But a lot of times they don't know where they end and where their client begins. And that's a common boundary. Right. I always say people, we didn't jump into this work because we think it looks good. You know, it does something for us as well. And you have to remember that when you're being a person who serves others. It's really important. Susie and I talk about boundaries all the time. And that's why I really appreciate, you know, your the way you wrap yourself around it and that you use it so universally. I think it's really important. You know, I really want to know, you already answered what psychological safety is, but can you talk about what psychological first aid means? There's a couple of terms that you use that I want to make sure people understand. Hmm. So I was actually, I actually just received training in psychological first aid and it's for, it was specific to during the pandemic because of the global wide pandemic that's happened over, or I would say one in three adults have now experienced a traumatic event in their lives because the global pandemic did not doesn't discriminate everybody had a piece and part of the pandemic that happened so now you have had experience you have a lived experience so i am starting to implement processes to make sure that anyone that comes to me for services i have the ability and capability to provide psychological first aid because every single adult or every single person that's coming to me probably is living with lived experiences at this point. Okay. All right. That's good. I'm glad we explained that. Um, Susie, you want to hop in here? Any thoughts, any feelings? Okay. I want to be honest. I don't think I still understand what that means. The first aid part. Okay. It's ensuring. Oh, sorry. Just like first aid, I'm not a doctor. I am not a physician. I am not a surgeon, but I am a first responder. So if somebody is having, is in crisis or somebody is in shock, I will be able to provide the aid that they need firsthand before they can go see someone with more experience, say a counselor or some a crisis center or something. But I'm there to intervene and be the first aid 
for them during that time. And for for the services that I provide, it helps a lot because a lot of people don't realize that they're already in that stage. They're already probably in need of the first aid, and I'm able to kind of refer them to the next level. Thanks for asking for clarification, Susie. I, I thought I understood and I did, but you never know that others didn't. So thank you. You know, I'm working at a school right now in Manhattan and, you know, it's the first time some of these kids have been in a building mm-hmm. and I'm realizing myself, this is the first time in forever I've been around this many people and the awareness and how profound that is. And then you think about these underdeveloped minds and bodies mm-hmm. and what it must be doing for them. I mean, they're excited to see people and their friends at the same time. You can see it you know, just, you can see that, that need of, of psychological safety, if you will, I'll use your words, you know, of really knowing it's going to be okay. And I think what's most profound is we can't promise them it's going to be okay. We still have anti-vaxxers. We still have people who are not a part of the solution and all kinds of conspiracy theories, as well as, you know, the extreme right. So how do you tell a child it's going to be okay when we really don't know if it's going to be okay? All we can do is provide containment in a safe space to explore possibilities and provide support. And we need as many people as we can on the front line to do that. So glad you're being trained in that. So now, Katrina, is there anything you want to share with us? We have a couple more questions, but I I want to make sure that you've shared all that you want to share with us. Um, I think at this point I have shared all I want to share. I always give a quick plug to foster care. So I grew up in the foster care system. I don't know if y'all can edit this out or not. No, no, (laughs) no, absolutely. I'm all about talking about foster care. I worked in foster care system for a very long time. I have a lot of feelings about it. Go ahead. So I grew up in an abusive family. We didn't have a lot of money, the the whole shebang. And we ended up in the foster care system. I always do a quick plug because since being more vocal about my experience and my lived time in the foster care system, I have met more people who have been in the foster care system. And I really felt alone. I was very quiet about having grown up in the past, being poor. Nobody talks about this shit. Mm-hmm. Until I started talking about my experiences, then people would ping me or DM me or email me and say, I also was in the foster care system. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole demographic people yeah. are not talking to. That's mm-hmm. absolutely true. And I appreciate the actress. What's her name? Susie, come on. You know names. You know pop culture better than I do. <laughs> the one who's dating Common right now. God, why am I drawing a blank on her name? Yes, thank you. Oh, Tiffany, Tiffany. Yeah. Oh, no, you're late, Susie. Don't try to jump in now. <laughs> Katrina already got the answer. Don't you come up in the rear. <laughs> yeah, I totally appreciate her vocalization of foster care and the experience. And I appreciate her making it real and visible and human for people. I also am challenged by the effort to show how resilient one could be as opposed to how oppressive, damaging, and criminal the foster care system is in structure alone, rather than pay money to families to be able to replenish themselves and grow in their parenting and build the family system. They take you from the family system, put you in a family system they can't guarantee is safe and pay people to abuse you. How does that make sense? It's absolutely criminal. So I will talk about the foster care system all day and all night. I already believe I'm on one of their uh, hit lists. So I'm good. I'll keep it pushing. I don't think it's okay. And um, I appreciate you bringing that up. I I think that we need to talk more about it. Thank you. Thanks. Glad you (laughs) made it through. You know, I worked on the front line in um, DPSS doing assessments for people. And uh, as a part of the GROW program in California, I cannot tell you how many homeless people came, dropped off after they aged out. Just another criminal aspect of it. 
where do you, if you're not going to college, where do you go? Mm-hmm. Apparently Skid Row is one of the places you get dropped off, just like the people who are imprisoned. Mm-hmm. It's just so many things that are systematically, uh, systemically set up to mm-hmm. oppress and, mm-hmm. and, and ruin people. And so again, anytime you want to talk about it, you can come on here to talk about it. Okay. I'm just really curious what your response is to what JD just said. What comes up for you? To the systemic problems yeah. with the foster care system? I concur. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I concur because even through my experiences and sharing experiences from other people who have gone through the system as well, there's so much stigma towards us, like the people that went through the system. And it's always like, oh, well, you must have done something. Or like, how did you get there? Like, we were children. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so confused as to how children who were abused and need better, better situations are now equal criminals. So yeah, just a lot of identities, a lot of lenses I have to survey the world through. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. Good question, Suze. So what's next? Let's get on to where you're headed, what you're doing. What's next on your journey? Next on my journey is, so I I think it's been two weeks, three weeks now. I was featured in a documentary on depression and- Can you name the documentary? Uh, I can't because it's not out yet. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, let us know. A documentary on depression. But I was featured in a documentary on depression and the director won an Emmy, like a a guy, like a real person. um, (laughs) And during the interview and just kind of the crew was really taken aback by like me as a person. And it really opened my eyes. Not really that people are still so taken aback by a normal person talking about their mental health experiences and their lived experiences and their conditions and the needs that they need to feel safe in spaces. They were just, they kept asking me over and over again, like, what are your mental health conditions? And like, like I've wrote them on the paper. Like, yes, I live with these conditions and I'm able to function, but I do need safe spaces. I do need boundaries. I need all of the things, but I'm sitting before you still functioning. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Tell people where they can find you. You can find me at www.katrinastroll.com or on LinkedIn. I'm on there all the time. And you're on IG. Oh, I am on Instagram, but don't follow me there because sometimes I shake my ass. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. You got to. You got oh, that's awesome. Uh, Katrina, what I, look, you've already made it clear, but I think I'll ask you in another way. What is the narrative you are changing? I am changing the narrative on what it looks like to be boundaried. I think a lot of people, when they hear about boundaries or when they hear a boundary being set, they immediately think like, oh, this bitch, like, (laughs) what is going on here? Like, why are you bringing that in this space? And I want more people to have the vocabulary they need, one, to name harm in your own life, because the fact that I'm setting a boundary ain't got nothing to do with you. And two, so that you're able to name harm so that harm doesn't come towards you and you're not causing harm towards other people. All the isms that we talk about on a daily basis, sexism, racism, 
trans queer hostility, all of those isms and are harm and they all fall underneath your respect and trust that you're giving towards another person and the relationships you're building. So long story short, I'm trying to change the narrative around what abuse looks like, what boundaries looks like, what all of this shit under the umbrella of mental health looks like, because y'all need it to be changed. I love that. And that's a perfect place to end. And I also want to validate you in saying, you know, we all have some mental health struggles. This idea that it is exclusive to certain people who look a certain way is ridiculous. You know, people need to understand everybody has it. And when it's, you know, further down the continuum, it's a chemical imbalance. If you had a broken leg, you wouldn't walk around with a wobbly leg. You get it fixed because it needs to be contained and re-established or re-whatever. I don't know what word I'm saying, but re-something. And uh, and the same thing with, thank you, Susie, reset. And, you know, the same thing with your chemicals. You know, if it's a chemical imbalance, you need, sometimes you need medication to be balanced. Sometimes it's okay. It's not a crime. So thank you so much for coming on. You, you are a doll, really. It's so sweet. You are so sweet. And, and this time has been so great. And I, I love your message and fully in support of what you're doing. If you ever want to come back on, we'd love to have you talk about you, where you are further down the road on your journey and so forth. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at IM Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to immusicgroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.